0: I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN. And you're listening to Murder in the Rain. I'm guessing many of you have listened to the podcast Finding Cleo, which details the heartbreaking case of Cleopatra Nicotinsa Magnus, a Cree girl stolen from her family and adopted out to a white family in the 1970s. I say stolen because she was, and so were all of her siblings. They were apprehended by welfare workers and sent to live with white families in North America. This was all due to a program called Adopt Indian and Matisse, or AIM for short. The podcast focuses on her sister, who's seeking answers to what happened to little Cleo, which the family believes was a sinister ending to her very short life. There was reason to suspect that Cleo left her adoptive family and was raped and murdered while hitchhiking on her way home to Saskatchewan to rejoin her birth family. Cleo was a victim of what's called the 60s scoop, which overlapped with the baby scoop era. This is an incredibly dark and sad time in our history, one that is traumatizing for many generations and is what I think the epitome of what can start a butterfly effect. The scoop years occurred over multiple decades. In Canada, where Cleo lived, it lasted from 1945 to 1988. The baby scoop era is the term used to describe a time where young, unwed pregnant mothers were targeted for forced adoptions of their unborn babies. Roughly 400,000 single expectant mothers aged 15 to 19 had their babies taken away from them by mainly religious-run groups who hosted maternity homes designed to basically farm these babies. In most of those homes, 100% of the babies went up for adoption. The 60s scoop, which happened during the baby scoop era in Canada, took place from the late 50s to the 1980s, and this was targeted at indigenous people. Children of all ages were taken from their homes and either adopted out or fostered with middle-class white families. It's estimated that over 20,000 indigenous children were affected by this program. And in most of these cases, they were forced removals where the parents or the mothers didn't want to give up their parental rights. In the United States, there was no designation of the 60s scoop. It all fell under the blanket term of the baby scoop era. But the same issues impacted us here, too. It didn't span as many years as it did in Canada, but far more pregnant mothers were targeted. From 1945 to 1973, 4 million mothers placed babies up for adoption in similar forced fashion. 2 million of those occurred in the 1960s alone. Many of these targeted adoptions were specific to single mothers where the social stigma of having children out of wedlock was too scandalous for everyday American life. With the guidance of religion and the guilt and shame they gave up their babies to be raised by other families. Like Canada, the United States also targeted indigenous families during the baby scoop era. The Indian Child Welfare Act was put into effect in 1978. Now, this act stopped the practice of stealing Indigenous children to adopt them out to white families. But by the time it was enacted, thousands of children had already been impacted. Today's case is about a man named Joe, who was a victim of the Baby Scoop era. But unlike Cleo, no one is looking for Joe. We know exactly where he is. Uncle Joe, as he would later be called, was a pedophile and a murderer, but like many, he started off life as a victim. Elizabeth Marie Curtis from Marquette, Michigan, became a mother at 18 years old. Within the year after her child's birth, she married his father, Dominic Joseph Durant. Elizabeth, who went by Marie Durant, was a Native American, part of the Chippewa tribe, and she had little more than a sixth-grade education. Her husband Dominic had a 10th grade education and was a truck driver. In a matter of a few short years, the couple had 10 pregnancies, 7 births, and one loss of a child due to SIDS. Life in the Durant household was a struggle. Dominic had trouble keeping a steady job to support his large family, which led to him turning to alcohol more and more. Friends and neighbors reported that Dominic was physically abusive to his wife. Marie also drank a lot of alcohol, and those around her cited that it was likely due to her miscarriages, the loss of a child, and the regular abuse she suffered from her husband. One day, Marie went out to the store to pick up groceries and came home to find that her four children had been taken—Michael, Esther, Phyllis, and Danny. They were all removed by a social worker and put up for adoption with white families. Marie was pregnant at the time, so when she went into labor and gave birth on May 19, 1959, the social worker arrived at the hospital and took the newborn child, Don Lee. She never had a chance to hold him or even see him. Only her sister, Pat, was able to hold him, kiss him, and name him before he was taken away. Dominic and Marie never officially gave up their children or signed away their rights as their parents. Their parental rights were terminated. The official government paperwork, Terminating Their Parental Rights of Baby Don Lee, arrived in January of 1960. Nearly a year later, he was adopted off to a white family on the West Coast. Marie never saw the five children taken away from her ever again. The children made efforts to communicate to each other later in life, but Marie never had that chance. She had one more child with Dominic, a girl named Mary. The couple ended up divorcing, but Marie was able to raise Mary, and when she grew ill, Mary took care of her until she needed to put her in a care facility. Marie and Dominic ended up dying within a year of each other, both in their 60s. Marie due to congestive heart failure and Dominic due to cancer. John and Eleanor Kondratovich lived in Castle Rock, Washington. Unable to have a child on their own, they turned to adoption as a way to complete their family. As they were eager to have a child, they tried to be as open as possible to whatever child could be placed with them. To increase their chances and speed up the process, they listed on their adoption application that they were open to a child with dark skin and one who had special needs. Eleanor was just desperate to become a mother. Eventually, they got the call that a dark-skinned boy named Don Lee would be placed with them. His mother was Indian, but his father was white, so he was deemed part white, and since Eleanor was Italian, the agency thought Don Lee would be a good fit for their family. The Kondratovich family welcomed the baby boy and named him Joseph Robert, and they affectionately called him Joey. Within a couple of years, the Kondratovich family wanted to feel more American, so they legally changed their name to Kondro, and they relocated to Longview, Washington. The Kondros tried to give Joey a middle-class life, one where he had all he ever needed and wanted, but that didn't mean they wouldn't have problems at home. Fighting was a constant. John, who was Polish-American, was known to have an explosive temper, and while the Condros tried hard to give Joey a stable American life by enrolling him in Catholic school, he always felt different. His brown skin drew attention from other kids, and even his own father referred to him as Eleanor's boy rather than my son. Eleanor never hid the fact that Joe had been adopted. He got into fights at school due to kids teasing him about being darker than his parents, so she explained to him that he was part Indian and that they had adopted him as a baby, but he was still her son. Joey even affectionately called Eleanor, Mama Bear. Fights at school weren't the only thing Joey was getting caught up in. He regularly got in trouble and committed acts that kids typically were not doing. By the age of seven, Joey was drinking alcohol. The boys that he hung around with in the neighborhood enjoyed torturing cats. And over the years, many animals would disappear from their neighborhood. And as an adult, Joe later admitted to killing them, despite claiming to be an animal lover his entire life. He didn't just fixate on animals. At the same young age of seven, he started manipulating and molesting girls his own age. As he grew older, the girls stayed young. He would manipulate them into showing him their naked bodies or allowing him to touch them inappropriately. Many of these girls were vulnerable, and he learned at an early age who to target and how to groom them so they wouldn't tattle. When Joey would get caught for any of his wrongdoings, his father would punish him with both mental and physical abuse. He spanked him and whipped him with objects. And while his mother doted on him, his father only told him he loved him once, something that impacted Joe for the rest of his life. By the age of 18, Joe had already been in and out of jail, and his parents had funded two visits to rehabilitation centers to try to manage his addictions. His childhood had been full of fighting, doing drugs, drinking, causing property damage, molesting girls, killing cats, and robbing stores. He now had a solid foundation for a life full of chaos and debauchery. As an adult, Joe was known to be good with kids. He had six of his own, and they were all by three different women. And while he wasn't a regular fixture in their lives, he had a natural way with them and a knack for making friends easily. There were several instances of Joe using his charisma and ability to manipulate on his own friends and family to take advantage of their children. It's important to note that Joe, as far as we know, never molested any of his own children. However, he leveraged them to abuse their friends. Joe had his three eldest daughters with a woman named Peggy. Now, he cheated on Peggy with multiple people. One was their friend's wife. Another was a 15-year-old child on a sports team he coached. But he was most interested in little girls. He preferred blonde girls around the age of seven years old. Peggy would often babysit kids in the neighborhood, so the house was always full of children. And Joe would use that opportunity to molest and rape them. He would wait until everyone was in bed or when Peggy was out at the store, and he would isolate one of the girls and work his way up to penetration rape. It might start with attention and touching, and then he was kissing and committing rape by oral sex, and many times it escalated to rape. So long story short, this was happening over a long period of time. These kids were very comfortable with Joe, making it highly unlikely that they would ever tell anyone what he was doing to them. One of these girls, Emily, did eventually tell her mother, but Joe manipulated the mother with long explanations and supplied her cocaine until eventually she brushed it off as a child's imagination or just denied it entirely. Thankfully, Emily didn't let up. Her and another friend approached both of their mothers at the same time to talk about it again, and this time it eventually resulted in Joe getting arrested for child rape. In 1996, Joe had married a woman named Julie West and eventually fathered another two children with her, Courtney and April. When Julie decided to divorce Joe, it was brought on by a number of issues. He had very obvious issues with alcohol, but he was also doing cocaine and heroin secretly. Julie described Joe as having these violent rages where he would assault her, including an incident where he attacked her, ripped her clothes off, and then ripped the sink off of the bathroom wall. This outburst was the one that finally moved Julie to get a restraining order and file for divorce. Even after divorcing him, she still had a sexual relationship with Joe. It's expected that she would see him as they had children together, but she even allowed Joe to move in with her as needed. He clearly had a way with words and could get her to do anything he wanted. And at that time, did she know about his... Uh... The rape? yeah. That he was a child molester. I definitely think everyone close to him had an inclination about it. I don't think at that point she she knew for sure. I don't think he had been arrested yet. I think the timeline's a gotcha. little fuzzy. no. I was just
1: curious if she knew. It wasn't like a, you know. Oh, she allowed. I that, definitely think, think she knew. I think she. I think she was, she was in on. denial.
0: Okay. I um, mean, she's done several interviews where she talks about. I know he did something, but mm-hmm. you know, it's that. I know he did something bad, but. I have no proof, so I'm going to ignore it kind of a thing.
1: Yeah. No, I was just curious.
0: The abuse didn't stop with Julie. His daughter, Courtney, admitted that her father was kind of mean and that he would slap her and throw her and her sister around if they ever talked back to him. She didn't even call him dad. In fact, they hardly knew him at all. It wasn't until he needed a place to live that her sister and her ever even got to know the man they called Joe. After Julie gave birth to their youngest son, one that was not biologically his, but he chose to accept as his, Joe and Julie were on again and he was back living with her. A young girl named Jessica stayed the night over at their house. Now, Jessica's father, Ken, had known Joe for 15 years, but their friendship would come to an end by the time he picked up his daughter, Jessica. The night she stayed over, she fell asleep watching TV on the living room floor. Joe had been on the sofa and decided he was going to take advantage of Jessica and touch her while she slept. The girl woke up in the middle of it, started screaming for him to stop, and he ended up being arrested, but he got acquitted. He was a drug-addicted, violent man blessed with charisma and charm. And while that was obvious to anyone who met him, it would be years before anyone really got to know the real Joseph Condro. Of course, there were those that knew there were whispers about child molestation, but for the most part, he did well to keep it under wraps. Unfortunately, he was far more dangerous than anyone would imagine, and when they finally did uncover who he really was, it was too late. On November 21, 1996, the principal at Monticello Middle School in Longview, Washington phoned Janet Rudd to let her know that her sixth-grade daughter, Kara, had been absent that day. When Kara neglected to arrive home after school as anticipated, Janet called the police to report that her 12-year-old daughter, Kara Patricia Rudd, was missing. Her mother then contacted her cousin, Yolanda, who would have been the last person to likely see Kara that day as they were together in the morning before school. After Kara's father had dropped Kara and Yolanda off at school at 7.15, the girls sat outside chatting while they waited for the school to open. Around 7.30 a.m., a family friend pulled up in his 1982 Gold Pontiac Firebird. The man called out to Kara, who then approached the car to talk to him. After a few minutes, she returned to Yolanda and asked if she wanted to skip school with her and go to a local farm to play with piglets. Yolanda wasn't sure about skipping and getting in trouble with her mom, so she told her she wasn't interested. Kara then asked Yolanda to cover for her so she could go by herself. Moments later, Yolanda watched Kara walk away from the school going east on Hemlock Street. Once police spoke to the Rudd family, they worked quickly and notified the Longview Daily News so an image of Kara could be circulated to residents. They were very interested in all of the details around what Yolanda shared with Janet, so they started with this family friend she mentioned. That family friend was Joseph Condro. Joe had spent his time living with the Rudds in their garage. It had recently become apparent that he had alcohol and drug problems, as well as a violent temper when he was under the influence. So after several incidents of him threatening the kids and getting blackout drunk, they asked him to move out. Over the time that he had lived with them, Joe had grown a strong relationship with Kara and had even previously taken her and her cousin Yolanda to an abandoned house to pick out a kitten for Kara to give to her mother for her birthday. Yolanda and Kara had skipped school at least once to hang out with Joe, and he had taken them swimming and camping along the Toutle River with one of his daughters. It was no wonder that Kara called Joseph Condro Uncle Joe. Police went to Condro to find out what he knew about Kara's disappearance. He indicated that he had seen her that morning. He had been driving by the school when he saw Kara and Yolanda, so he pulled over to say hi, but then he promptly drove away. The police asked him about the piglets and the farm, and Joe admitted that Kara asked him to drive them there so that they could skip school. But the dutiful faux uncle that he was, he declined and told them to go to school and stay out of trouble. He then went on to say that he left the girls at school and drove down Hemlock Street and stopped at the Hemlock store to grab a coffee. The two store clerks that worked there said they could not say that they saw him at that time he specified, but that they did know who he was. He told police he spent that morning applying for jobs all over town before going to his ex-wife's house at 11.45 a.m. to hang out with her all the way through the evening. This wasn't exactly what his ex-wife Julie West had to say to police. They interviewed her regarding the date, and she said that, yes, he did arrive at 11.45 to take their son to school. He then returned at 12.30 and asked Julie to come with him so he could apply for jobs. He took her to a place called Industrial Paint so that he could drop off a resume. While they drove there, he mentioned applying at Mart Holler's log yard, but that his car got stuck in the mud while he was there. Julie noted that she saw zero mud on the tires or any part of the car. She also noticed that inside his car was an unfamiliar hairbrush. Julie ended up asking Janet Rudd about this hairbrush she found. She remembered it vividly and described it to Janet as black with white bristles, and all of the bristles had black tips. Some of them were missing, and some of them looked like they had been chewed on. Janet said Kara always carried a hairbrush that looked like that. Later, when the police asked the workers at Mart Holler's log yard, they were positive Joe had never been there. Police started to focus on Joe Condro. As they looked into his life further, their suspicions grew more intense. They realized Joe was fired multiple times for doing drugs on the job. He was violent with his girlfriends and even more alarming, he had been accused and arrested, though ultimately acquitted, for molesting his friend's daughter in 1994. A new witness came forward who saw Kara walking towards the lake when a firebird pulled up and the child got in. To the witness, it appeared like they knew each other, and we all know Joe Condro drove a firebird. Joe's alibi started to fall apart. The jobs he applied to, well, police went to every single location he mentioned, and no one remembered him. Now police believe that they had their man, they instructed Joe not to speak to anyone they deemed a witness in the case, that included his ex-wife, Julie. He disregarded their request and went straight to his wife to coach her on what to say to police. And rather than do what he said and keep it under wraps, she turned to police to tell them everything. That gave police a reason to arrest him for witness tampering. After weeks of interviewing people who knew Joe Condro, one of his friends finally opened up to tell police about Mount Solo. This is a remote location near the Columbia River where he and Joe used to go to drink, do drugs, and sometimes hook up with women. On January 4, 1997, investigators decided to follow that lead and focus their search on the Mount Solo area. Within a few hours of searching this huge remote area, an officer noticed an old, abandoned red Volkswagen bug, and inside they found a shirt and a bra. The shirt was an exact match for the black Reebok shirt that Kara was wearing the day she disappeared. And as the investigator looked more closely at the car, he could see that just below it, human remains were sticking out. The medical examiner was quickly able to confirm that the remains were in fact Kara's. When the autopsy took place, it was determined that Kara had been raped and strangled. Semen was found inside Kara's body, and it was later matched with Joe Condro's blood. While he awaited trial for the aggravated first-degree murder charge of Kara Rudd, Condro was sent to court for sex abuse. Two brave girls testified that Condro abused them in 1991. A jury convicted him of first-degree child rape and first-degree child molestation for the crimes committed against three little girls aged 7, 9, and 10. On January 28, 1997, the 37-year-old Joseph Condro pled not guilty to the rape and aggravated murder of Kara Rudd. That's when he learned that the state was planning to seek the death penalty. For nearly two years, Condra fought against investigators, constantly claiming he was not to blame for Kara's murder, even though they had DNA evidence saying otherwise. While he was in jail after pleading not guilty, but before being given any kind of sentence for Kara's murder, Joe was not just sitting around quietly planning his defense with his lawyers. He was actually becoming a notorious inmate by causing a literal shitstorm. As I combed through articles for this case, I stumbled upon one from 1998 detailing how a huge raw sewage leak happened in the Cowlitz County Clerk's Office, where the jail and the Hall of Justice are located. Over the years, it was well known that sewage problems often happened. Multiple toilets flowed into the same sewage line, so when a blockage would occur, it would cause a mess in multiple locations. One morning, the workers arrived to their office to find it totally covered in poo. Joe Condro had purposely shoved towels down his toilet, causing a huge backup and thus a biohazard everywhere. Condro had been in his cell in isolation for over a year awaiting trial, and this was just one of many behavioral problems officials were forced to deal with during his stay. In what I think was a move to save his own ass, Joseph Condro made a shocking admission in 1999. He did kill Kara, and he also killed another girl 14 years prior. The DA then made the difficult decision to offer Joseph Condro a plea deal. They would forego the death penalty in Kara's case if he admitted guilt and if he told them everything he knew about the 1985 case of Rima Traxler.
1: <music>
0: Rima Danette Traxler was eight years old when she went missing in Longview, Washington on May 5, 1985, The day started as any other. Rima went to St. Helens Elementary School and got on the bus to head home at the end of the day. But Rima never arrived at home. When Rima's mother, Danelle Kin, realized Rima was late coming home from school that day, she went outside and retraced the walk her daughter would have taken. She started to panic when she found no trace of her. She then decided to call police, and several officers were immediately dispatched to help search. Danelle was obviously frantic and incredibly worried that something terrible had happened. Rima was the center of her world, and as such, they spent a lot of time discussing stranger danger. Because of this, the family used a code word, which was a common way to protect kids from accepting rides from a stranger. They're instructed that only someone who really has permission to pick them up would know this code word. The Traxler family's code word was unicorn. According to Danelle, the only people who knew that were her, her husband, Rusty, and their two children. As police spoke to neighbors, they learned that on Rena's way home, she stopped at a neighbor's house to share her artwork that she had made at school. After she showed off her work, she left heading in the direction of her stepfather's house, one block away. Randy Traxler and Rima's mother, Danelle, were recently separated and no longer living together. Danelle had custody of Rima and her young son that she shared with Rusty. Rusty Traxler had a history of drinking and unemployment. Rusty and his wife had been fighting over custody and their separation was getting a little bit nasty as Rusty had just legally lost custody of his son. Lately, his relationship with Rena was rocky too as he blamed her for the reason his relationship with her mother was failing. Possibly due to the low percentage of stranger abductions and the very obvious tenuous relationship, Rusty Traxler became the primary focus in the disappearance of Rima Traxler. His alibi was pretty weak. He was at home drinking on the front porch all day with a friend, but that friend was able to corroborate and offer that alibi. Even though his friend was with him most of the day, he did admit that there was a small portion of time that they spent apart, so police couldn't rule out Rusty. They eventually suggested that he take a polygraph, or three, all of which he failed. The questions he ended up failing were around having any kind of knowledge about what happened to Rima. This solidified Rusty as the primary suspect in her disappearance. As hard as police tried, there was no physical evidence to support this theory, so the case started to go cold. It stayed open for years and multiple officers dedicated time as they could, One thing they all had in common was they were pretty sure Rima was dead. They just didn't have a body, and they had no way to connect someone to a murder. What they would realize years later, now that they had a man in custody for the rape and murder of another Longview child, is that Joe Condro knew about Rima's case, and that's because Joe Condro was Randy Traxler's alibi that day. This offered police and the D.A. a unique opportunity. Here they had a man who there was a rock-solid case against in the murder of 12-year-old Kara Rudd, and he might be able to help close a case from 1985. At the time of Kara's case in 1996, Washington State did offer the death penalty. The D.A. suggested that for Joe's cooperation in Rima's case, he could avoid it. Joe Condro agreed to the terms of the plea. He would give them all of the details of Rima's murder and he would tell them where her body was in order to avoid being put to death. We know police interviewed Kondro early on in Rima's disappearance. He had helped to support Rusty's alibi, but also to poke holes in it. As for his own, when he was not with Rusty, he had said that he had driven to a store to buy beer and cigarettes. Now, this was in the area of Rima's disappearance, so it's safe to say police might have considered him at the time. But they ultimately had no evidence, so he was taken off the list of people of interest. So what actually happened to Rima? According to Condro, he saw Rima walking and pulled up beside her to pick her up. Unfortunately, what no one knew is that Rusty had slipped up. He had told Joe Condro the family safe word. Condro was able to get Rima in his car by uttering one simple word, unicorn. He then took Rima to a local swimming hole in Longview called German Creek. He told her that her parents were coming to join them soon, and after splashing around for a bit, she came out of the water, and that's when he pounced. He used a rock to hit her over the head, and then he raped her until she began to scream. Kondro then started to choke her with his hands until she died. He claims that it took him a total of 45 minutes to abduct, rape, and kill Rima. He told police that he had always scoped for a good spot to dispose of a body before he planned to kill someone. Rima's final spot would be a shallow grave under a tree near the creek that he took her to swim at. And while one of the terms of the plea was that he helped police find her remains, they never did find Rima. To this day, Rima's body remains somewhere unknown to us. Condro claimed that she's there in that area, and he's very surprised no one ever found her. In 1999, with the plea deal in place, Joseph Condro added two life sentences to his prison term, totaling 55 additional years for the murders of Rima Traxler and Kara Rudd. Having Joe Condro behind bars was a relief, but it wasn't a full resolution. Police and psychologists believe that he had many more victims, possibly 70 victims of molestation and rape and very likely more murders. I know we always say something like, we may never know how many victims he had, but it's the truth. The final power that these creeps have on us is that they hold all of the cards about the cases we don't know about. Without physical evidence, we're always left to wonder who else they murdered. One of the cases that comes up a lot when reviewing Joe Condro is the 1982 murder of eight-year-old Shyla Silvernails. In fact, most experts agree that Joe Condro is to blame for this case and that he likely killed Shyla like he did Rima and Kara. So if you look online at her murder, it will be associated with him. Sheila M. Silvernails lived in Kalama, Washington with her adoptive family. On the morning of April 20, 1982, she left her family's home on Marin's Bluff Road to walk down the end of her driveway to wait for her school bus. Sheila had recently spent time convincing her mother that she was old enough to walk to the school bus on her own, something her mother typically did with her each morning. But that day, she walked on her own. When the school bus driver stopped at the bus stop at the end of their driveway, the only thing there was Shyla's lunchbox. The Silvernails family was not aware that Shyla was missing until she neglected to come home from school that day. They did eventually learn from the school that she was not present, nor did she ever even board the bus that morning. The search for Shyla commenced that afternoon. The next day, a search dog discovered Shyla's body in a creek bed near Shirley Borden Road about three miles from her house. She was found partially clothed, with a stab wound in her throat and one in her shoulder. The medical examiner concluded that she had been asphyxiated and it was likely caused by someone placing a hand over her nose and mouth. While there was never official word on if she had been raped, people close to the case have said that it was a sexually motivated murder. Detectives started to work the case by interviewing neighbors and the witnesses who had called in information. Several people claimed to have seen someone driving past Shiloh's driveway twice that morning. The cars passed the home in a way that would have put the passenger side door directly next to the Silvernails driveway. They described the man as white, with a beard, driving a blue two-door car. A sketch was put together and circulated in the news and papers. The case offered a reward and had multiple anonymous tip lines set up. Thousands of tips came in, and over the years, many leads surfaced. Investigators interviewed multiple suspects, but eventually the case went cold. When Condro went to jail and confessed to Rima and Kara's murders, detectives all over Washington revisited unsolved child homicides, which included the re-examination of Shyla's case. Information surfaced linking Condro to the case. Firstly, he was definitely in the area at the time. In one of his letters that he wrote to author Lori Carangelo, he mentioned that in the early 1980s, he was working for RSG Forest Products, which was located in Kalama, Washington. There were rumors that he also knew Shyla's parents. Word on the street is that, like Rima Traxler's stepdad, Condra was a drinking buddy of Don Silvernail's. Condro was also a well known fixture at all of the bars in Kalama, and the Silver Nils were also known to frequent some of the same bars. Perhaps Condro gained enough information on Shyla from having drinks with her parents to make her appealing to him as a potential victim. Unfortunately, there was no evidence physically linking Condro to Shyla, and though many people believe he did it, he was never arrested for it, and her case remains open to this day. People tried to get interviews with Joe Condro over the years, and they all wanted the same thing, informations on the killings he hadn't yet taken credit for. But he turned all of those down. He had one fear, and that was the death penalty. It's thought that he would never take credit for another murder because the death penalty was always a risk. It wasn't until a television show approached everyone's favorite FBI profiler, John Douglas, to interview several murderers that Condro finally agreed to an interview. That interview was not about divulging secrets about new victims, but helping the FBI understand why he committed the two murders he did admit to. Apparently, while he was committing unspeakable crimes, that didn't mean that he was opposed to helping them catch other people who might also want to commit those crimes. He ended up giving a lot of valuable information to John Douglas, which he includes in some of his books. Joseph Condro would spend his life in prison, but to me, it wasn't long enough because he died at the young age of 52. His death certificate cites natural causes, but there are those that believe that might not be the case. Like I mentioned before, Joe corresponded with author Lori Carangelo for a long time. She mentioned in her book, Condro, the Uncle Joe Killer, that he had learned of a plot to kill him in prison. So he went to the guards and they put him in isolation from the general population for his own protection. Everyone knows life in the clink is not a great place if you're a pedophile. So it's not a big stretch to consider that those natural causes he died from were actually caused by other people. That theory is not substantiated by any means, but I thought I would bring it up as a consideration.
1: It's possible. And maybe they don't do an autopsy and maybe it was
0: it's like good riddance. something that didn't leave a mark. Yeah. It's very possible. It's very possible. And he was a bad guy. So, yeah. In the correspondence with Lori and the interview with John Douglas, we learn some really disconcerting and haunting things from Joe Condro. Some of the information is expected, but others not so much. Firstly, Condro never regretted what he did. There was never any remorse about the rape and murder of the children that he committed, his friend's children. Not only that, he made it clear that if he were free, he'd still be out there doing it. And he said if he could change one thing, it would be to find better hiding spots to dispose of bodies. It's clear that he thought he would have never been caught if it weren't for the discovery of Kara's body. He even wrote to the newspaper once, and it said, quote, I hope you all took a good look at the person that is responsible for stealing your two innocent children and taking their souls like I did. I surely didn't lose one minute of sleep over my actions. The thing that haunts me the most, the thing that I will not stop thinking about, is how this man took power in the most awful ways. He groomed children, he bonded with children, and then he overpowered them, took their innocence before snuffing out their life. But the icing on the cake of this monstrosity is how he described the girl's final breath. He told police that as he choked the life out of these little girls, he made sure to, quote, Breathe in their final breath. He claims that as they exhaled, he made sure to breathe it in. Total control until the last moment, and it's truly terrifying. We talk about horrible, disturbing things, but that really got to me. And then thinking about that quote where he says taking their souls, it makes me think he actually thought he was doing that. Yeah, that that was somehow
1: I'm I'm bringing you into me. You're and now it part just of me. Really gives me the heebie-jeebies. It's, very it's disgusting.
0: Yeah. If there's anything I learned about Joseph Condro, it's that though his kill list is much shorter than other serial killers, at least the ones we know, he is one of the most terrifying to me. Charismatic Uncle Joe, who will win you over with attention and kind words, and then he'll steal your children from you in the most horrific way that you can imagine. He was a textbook child groomer with no empathy. I mentioned Lori Carangelo's book, Condro, the Uncle Joe Killer, a few times. It's very concise. So if you're interested in this case, you can read it in like an hour and a half. But what I really appreciated is the addendum of the book. She did a lot of work on looking at killers who were adopted. And then also she wanted to talk a lot about offenders and kind of to help parents like here's what you look for. So I pulled out some of the bullets that I thought were important takeaways. So the first is offenders will use what we call child lures in order to groom kids, and these fall into nine categories. Affection, assistance, authority, bribery, games, hero, job, threats, and weapons and drugs. And these um, kind of pair with this idea of a VIP, a very important person. These can be like Church pastors, coaches, you know, we all know the story of Mm -hmm. these people abusing their power.
1: I inherently have authority and therefore
0: I can use these other tools. Right. And then I'm going to scare you and threaten you to not tell anyone. And you know
1: I know your parents or you know I know your principal. Right.
0: Many offenders gain access to kids by befriending people with kids or, in particular, targeting single mothers, i.e. why I never put a picture of my kid on dating apps. Thank you for that. (laughs) They are often going to offer babysitting or even take jobs where they work closer with kids, like coaching or tutoring. And then the kids that become targets we know are often high risk. Maybe they're low income, children of divorce, or they've already been abused. They seek out these kids who are troubled or even neglected, so kids doing drugs or maybe those that don't have a lot of supervision. 90% of sexually abused children are abused by a family member or a family friend. Ninety percent. There's none of this creeper in the car luring them Mm -hmm. away. It really is all the people, you know, much of the time offenders start offending in their teens at around 12 to 14 years old. So you're going to see that behavior start and then it's going to escalate. One in seven sexual assaults happen at around 4 p.m., which is typically right after school. And then this one that's crazy Nine out of 10 kids do not tell anyone about being sexually abused, typically out of fear or embarrassment, but also out of dependency on their abuser. So a parent, a grandparent, someone who pays for their lunch. Mm -hmm. So experts say that parents need to make sure they're talking to their kids about sex. Um, After doing some research with offenders, they learned that those kind of kids that know about sex and know the appropriate terms for body parts are not really someone they seek out to abuse. Because those kids are more likely to verbalize that Oh, because they're like educated about it. So then it's, well, he touched my penis or he touched my vagina. Rather than my special
1: area Uh, or something. So it's private and we can't talk about that part of my body at all. So I certainly couldn't tell you that someone else touched it because you've told me if I touch it, it's bad. So if someone else touches it, it must be very bad.
0: So I have to say, if you're a parent and you're listening, the number one parental advice I can give is have that sex talk early. And I learned from my best friend Yes, it's awkward, but if you don't show that it's awkward, your kids don't think it's awkward. And as much as you're in your head going, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, they don't know that you're doing that. And I got it done in like second grade. We got a couple of books. We read them together. She read them by herself, asked me questions, and it's, you know, now she knows. Yeah. So it is one of those – it's like I hate doing the tooth fairy stuff, but the sex talk was really, really hard. Yeah. But – Well, and you're protecting –
1: Whatever you're protecting, your embarrassment or your modesty or your whatever your you child think you're risk. protecting. Yeah. When really you need to be protecting your child. And by having by being uncomfortable or being embarrassed or whatever it is you
0: think that's happening, in the long term, you're protecting. Them. Absolutely. So I, I really liked that she put that in the book. And there's a lot more in there. And she even has kind of a summary of all of the killers who were adopted because she spends a lot of her research doing that. So I found it to be really interesting. Do you have questions? Um, no, I was just going to go back to
1: say about the sex thing that obviously age appropriate and it doesn't have – that does not mean that you're just talking about heteronormative sex activity. You don't have to take your six-year-old to the side and be like, and this is ejaculate and this is – Yeah. it can be here's what the body parts are called on different bodies. P- you know, here should be your personal boundaries for people touching them because of your age or, you know, whatever. Um yeah, there you are know, a lot of It doesn't of have good to be books. a big,
0: this is how babies are made. <laughs> so know? we, we I got two books and one of them. I'll they try were to, great. I remember those. I'll try to find the name of the one I really like to put in our blog. But I found it really, really helpful. And she got enough out of it that she really had very few questions. Yeah. No, I remember I went over and she was like, look at this book we got. And we sat and looked yeah, at it together. She was excited about it. I was
1: like, wow, that's really interesting and very informative. That's <laughs> cool. And she was very excited, but only in like a giggly kid way of like oh look at this isn't this yeah wild? i mean she had a she had a
0: few questions of like is that really what happens when you do make a baby and i thought right? that was really funny yeah the shock of her face right I'm like oh what so it goes well
1: on all of our faces <laughs> um i was just gonna say with people like this well so many things about this guy especially because starting out the story I personally carried this sense of empathy for him. That's the point. (laughs) Of, like, you're in a horrible situation. You were basically kidnapped. You were raised in an abusive home. Not surprising that it then turned into you being the abuser. And, And there's something about the way, like, something about the letter and saying, you know, that I'm this horrible person. It felt almost self-protective or or building his own narrative about himself interesting you should say that you know of like i'm this horrible horrible monster and here's these horrible which they are i mean these are very beyond atrocious crimes that he committed but there is this weird sense of he's saying that because he hates himself or something and it's i don't want anyone in my life no one needs to be connected to me just like from my
0: childhood yeah i don't want
1: anyone connected and well, so I'm this cu- monster. A couple
0: of things. The first is um, Rima's mother actually had a lot to say about the fact that she doesn't think he killed her daughter. First of all, she, I think she has a little bit of denial going on. She thinks mm-hmm. her daughter is still alive. Oh, okay. But she brings up some good points. She says it was not long before their code word hit the media she doesn't think Kondro actually killed her and she doesn't think he knew that code word until he read it in the media. She thinks he took the opportunity to get off of the death penalty because he had enough detail about Rima in order to say, oh, I committed this murder that you haven't solved. Get me off of death row and you can close it. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, no, he did this. Like, oh, but they have no body. Right. They never found her. Maybe that's very maybe interesting. She's right.
1: And then if not, I mean... Maybe she's saying that because you can't fathom. That would be like me hurting Chloe. Yeah. I mean, you can't fathom. If you drank a lot, but yeah. Right. But it's like if you yeah, you can't fathom you have that. that person in your well, life.
0: And that's a, an important thing to these parents go through all of these emotions. But one of them is denial that they were the person that brought in this bad right. man into their child's I'm life. I'm supposed to protect my kid. And I literally did the right. opposite. But at the same time, there's valid points. There's nobody. Condro, though, he took it a step further and he said, oh, Rusty knew about it. He helped me. He called him a co-conspirator. And the police did look into Rusty for that reason. He says that Rusty helped him do it, that he wanted to play the savior, that he tried to get Condro to take Rima so he could rescue her and then win his wife back. Uh, so he, he, well, he had he a said very... That, and you said Rusty
1: already was blaming the uh, Rima for the parents mm-hmm. having issues. So there's obviously an unhealthy relationship yeah.
0: there. But so it's interesting, okay, if Condro took credit for it just to get off death row, why would he go a step further and like call out his friend like that? It's very yeah. it's very dramatic. And and the again the letter is like I
1: took their last breaths yeah. into to like and I'm this monster. Why would you want that even though yes, it kept, it, it kept you from it. the death penalty. Mm-hmm. But to yeah, that's that's crazy. And also I um The connection, which I think feel like we I make this connection a lot because these people, these megalomaniacs or whatever it is, it's so alike. that day they asked him and he's like, oh, yeah, I went and I had a job interview Mm or I applied at this lumber lumber lumberyard and I got stuck in the mud and like all these very specific things. Number one, if you're lying, the more detail, the more BS. Number two. It's so like Casey Anthony of like, yeah. yes, I work at Universal Studios.
0: <laughs> let me show you <laughs> let where me, I work. Um, let
1: me just take you down some hallways. And it's like, did did you really not think, are you that so
0: far up your own ass that you're like, but, no one's going to say? Not in his defense, but as explanation. Uh, one, so, you know, I brought up how children of adoption who go into therapy have these common traits. One of them is this pathological need to lie. Interesting. And a lot of times pathological liars do that. They start off normal and then they become these elaborate stories. Oh, okay. So he could he might be in a position where he literally cannot help himself from saying those. things, Right. You had mentioned earlier, too, that there's
1: thought or you think that he didn't molest his own children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is that? Because that seems if he's going after
2: Girls Even his, age. yeah,
1: girls that age, and is pretty brazen about it, including his friends' kids. Why not his own?
0: Yeah, I thought the same thing because he has so many kids, and that convenience element is there. Um, but that was something that came up in the interview with John Douglas. So John Douglas wrote about him in his book, The Killer Across the Table. And he said one of the reasons Condro likely didn't abuse his own children is because he saw them as a piece of himself and a narcissist isn't going to hurt himself. Oh, OK. And I thought that was interesting. I mean, I feel like I'd have to do a lot more research on that topic, but that kind of makes sense, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm
1: I'm not mad at that idea. It's, of course, not oh, because he would never do that to his own child or couldn't hurt right. his own and child and said it's like, no, that's too
0: close to being me and I don't want to hurt me. And also he like never was around his kids. So you would think he was detached enough to yeah. abuse them. I thought that was very, he's like an anomaly to me, but he's so textbook. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So one of the things that you'll find in the addendum of the book that I found super interesting, and I'm actually going to look into reading this author's other books, but she talks a lot about adopted people who became offenders or adopted people in therapy. And one of the things that came out of it is this term adopted child syndrome. And this comes from a study of adoptive people in therapy. They were all showing these eight, well, not all of them, but there are these eight behaviors that are showing up from these people. And this was coined by a psychoanalyst called David Kirshner. Now, he said that these adoptive people in therapy had conflicts with authority, preoccupation with fantasy, pathological lying, stealing, running away, learning difficulties that can be either underachievement or overachievement, and a lack of impulse control, including acting out Um, promiscuously or committing sexual offenses and fire setting. And what is really interesting is Joe Condro had all of those things. At some point in his life, he did all of those things. Mm -hmm. So it really makes me wonder about this whole idea of adoptive children and their identity, because one of the things they talk about is those children have almost two lives, right? They Mm -hmm. have the life they're living and then the life they may not know at all. And that's probably a root of a lot of these behaviors and
1: i'm curious too if there's a connection to the i don't know what the word would be the intensity of the adoption situation true like Um, i was stolen yeah like you were taken in this horrible program uh, that was racist based and uh religious based and whatever else it's super intense and you were taken as opposed to someone like our dear josh here who was happily healthily adopted if that's something you even want to talk about
2: Uh, sure yeah. What What do you want me to talk about? Do you feel like setting fires? Uh, no. no. <laughs> have you uh... or have you ever
0: <laughs> set a fire?
2: I uh, no. But I think when you were going through that list, there were a bunch of things that I at some point in your life. you Yeah. Touched what was that list on? again? Can I hear that again? Yeah, I'll probably sure. cut it out, but I want to hear it. Yeah.
0: Conflict with authority. Mm. Preoccupation with fantasy.
2: Mm.
0: Pathological lying. <laughs> stealing. Yeah. Running away Mm-mm. from your home or. Even emotional my situations. My problems, absolutely. Learning difficulties, and mm-hmm. that can be underachievement, overachievement. I
2: underachieve so hard.
0: <laughs> Lack of impulse control, including mm-hmm. sexual acts, oh. promiscuity, or offensive. Offensive? Offensive sexuality. <laughs> yeah, and fire
2: setting. So, I, I mean, I've, I like fire, I've but not like- Dabbled. Yeah, we've all dabbled in fighting things on fire, but no. Uh, interesting, yeah. And um, actually saying that thing about two lives is that since I have, I met my- biological family like two years ago i have i i now understand that feeling that i always had which is that i'm um i'm myself but i don't have all the information yeah and it's uh, like so
0: who are you really yeah
2: and it was eye-opening to meet them and to uh to understand like what the things that they had gone through because i had a, a i was adopted into like the best possible adoptive family i mean except that they got divorced <laughs> and everybody went crazy <laughs> but whatever um they're the most loving, but like, yeah, the, the, my biological family had a, a tougher time, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of struggling since I've met them. I've thought that had I grown up with them, I, I probably would be a very different type of person. That's
0: interesting yeah. too, because then you think a lot about nature versus nurture Yeah, and something that the author had asked Joe Condra was, were you molested as a child? Like, did something happen to you, whether in your adoptive home or at school that caused this? And he said, no, but... I looked into my biological family and there were two sex offenders in his like immediate mm, family wow. who went to jail for it. So mm-hmm. maybe he thought maybe there was more something genetically. So I yeah. thought
1: his home. I thought his home had been abusive.
0: It, um, no, it was more like mentally and like physical, not right. sexual abuse. Well, but st- I mean, still, I it mean, was abusive. Con- right.
1: Abuse leads to lack of control and control is sought. True. In I think she was ways. specifically
0: asking about sexual abuse right. and he said no, like. He he just he didn't learn that behavior. He just started he started doing it. But then again, maybe he did and he doesn't remember. Yeah, that too. Did you find
1: growing up that there was stigma around? Because there was kind of thought of like, oh, mm-hmm. that,
2: that killer was adopted. So, you know, they were good. Uh, I've never experienced that ever, no. Only, people have only ever said at, at the very least, oh, that's cool. <laughs> like I think people <laughs> really think it's pretty – and it is cool. It's like the coolest thing in the world. Especially Unless when they, it's like a
0: happy story, that you yeah. went from a home where you may have had a disadvantaged life to one where you had yeah. everything
2: you needed. And I really think that because i because I had the life that I had, which is very privileged, uh, not just comparatively, but it was a privileged life, that it kept me <laughs> from doing things like that. Mm. not mm-hmm. not all of them, but some of them mm-hmm. because uh the support that I have from them, the love like it was it was very complete, and so I never had to push to uh for any of that stuff yeah right yeah but and
1: i love too one day we were talking about it and you said you stopped yourself because you said something something when i was given up for adoption wait when i was placed for adoption mm-hmm. oh that's interesting and i really Take the negative that really yeah. yeah it stuck with me because it's not i'm giving up for adoption mm-hmm. it's I am placing you somewhere that hopefully is a better outcome than yeah. what I'm able That's to. That's a good point. And you. you're
0: self-correcting that negative terminology. Someone like Joe Condro, I mean, he was stolen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that makes a huge imprint on who you are. I'm stolen because there is so much shame about my existence that they had to correct my yeah. mother. Now, I will say the, the positive about him, there isn't a lot, is he did look into his his ancestry and he applied for, you know, to be a card carrying Native American, oh, uh-huh. uh, had a blood test and then he even reached out to his siblings. So there was that interaction with that bio family and trying to learn who he was. I just think it was too late. He mm-hmm. was already who he was at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, that brings me to something I did want to talk about. Something I took out of the intro because I didn't want to get too like raged up, but I want to <laughs> talk a little bit. But then, now I'm ready to rage about st- about stealing Indigenous people. And we talk. We have these this act that went into place in the 70s in the U.S. And just on January 1st, 2020, an act, uh, the Act respecting First Nations, Inuit, and Matisse children, youth, families became an official law in Canada. So that basically says. White people cannot take indigenous children and place them anywhere. It has to be the tribe that is in full control of it. But that isn't solving our problems. I still want to make it very clear that we have extreme issues with Native kids in foster care. So the first thing to talk about is in Canada, they actually have a term called millennium scoop. And this is the name they've given it in the recent years. And it's this spike in these native children being in foster care. So the the 2016 Canada um, census showed that 52% of kids 14 years or younger in foster care are indigenous. 52%. That's like insane. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, okay, maybe it's Canada. They have a lot of indigenous people. Well, in the U.S., it's just as high. I mean, Native Americans are right on par with with black children in foster care. And while black kids are going down in foster care, Native Americans are climbing. So it is still a continued problem. Because it's real
1: sweet and cute sanding to say, oh, we made this law to protect the kids and keep them on the... They still need help. uh, Keep them with their families and and that kind of thing. It's like, but what resources are you providing Exactly to provide good health, to provide sex education, uh, preventing pregnancies, providing resources for when they have the baby so they're able to keep the baby and be healthy. It's like we've stripped them of everything Mm -hmm. and don't allow for a lot of opportunity but then we put a cutesy little law on it to say look at yeah, it we're gonna absolutely. make sure that
0: it stays like, and there are some young children active trying to change things and one of them in an article and sorry i can't cite it. it's definitely in my notes so it's there but uh, they said for an example of how disadvantaged and this is affecting our people is a mother a native american mother can apply for a six hundred dollar a month check welfare check right and that can help her buy groceries if that child is removed and put into foster care or adopted they can get twelve hundred dollars a month how fair is that to feed your children also
1: if you are adopted if you are Native American in the U.S. or at least in Oregon if you're adopted and you're Native American you lose your Native American uh, status Right, so and that's why they're I, trying to
0: keep it within their tribe
1: and their own people, which is. But it, that's generational. So I had dated yeah. someone whose mom was fifty percent Native American, so that made him a quarter. Which and you should get scholarships, yeah. And you have access to all these things that are in place to help Native American people grow and and have the opportunities that they mm-hmm. so rightfully deserve, and. It's like, oh, no, your mom was adopted. So we can't acknowledge that you have any. It's
0: like that's crazy. And we have to remember like these are hundreds of years of just white people stomping on these Mm -hmm. people. Like we can't fix it with one law or one check per month. Like we need to reform, reform, reform and help these people keep their culture and keep their children. It has been promising to see. You know, with the Black Lives Matter
1: movement, there's a lot of return the stolen land yes. and you're on stolen land. Yeah, or, we're, we're on um, an
0: uptick, I think, but
1: it, there's a long way to go. Yeah. Changing Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, almost Which I think every, my work is doing this year. Oh, good. Almost every event that I went to for Black Lives Matter, whether it was a protest or a march or a sit in whatever, it started with. Uh, a Native American prayer and acknowledging where we were like what the land was and who used to occupy that's and cool. all of that so there there really is that the same way that we're doing with pronouns or you know that kind of thing where we're just adding that acknowledgement because it should be acknowledged and then we can work to go whoa what's the bigger picture here wait we stole a ha- oh I'm sorry 400,000 babies okay <laughs> let's let's reevaluate what we're doing here so yeah, yeah that's a, an intricate case with a lot of Just a lot of layers to it.
0: And as a palate cleanser and barely related to what we're talking about, (laughs) I thought I would bring up my show I finished recently, The Wilds. I think everyone should watch it. It's on Amazon Prime. Uh, It's young adult fiction, but don't let your like, I mean... You raise your kids how you want to raise your kids. But I think 12 years or younger is a little too adult for them. Uh, But anyway, the premise is there's these group of girls and they're being sent by either their parents or they get a scholarship to go to this women's retreat. So it's all about like women empowerment. And they crash. The plane crashes and they end up on a deserted island. And it's basically them trying to survive. Now, why I like it is they've got so many different types of people covered. Mm. They've got um, they've got uh two black girls one of them has autism they've got two native american girls one of which is not only gay uh but she is in foster care so they're really wow. kind of like putting people in the media who are t- different than we normally well, see but multifaceted. actually people multi not exactly. just hi i'm your fill-in black girl and, and i'm the, the
1: black girl it's like no i am multifaceted yep. i have a lot going on they I'm have people coming out
0: they have people having a a relationship with older people like it really is showing all signs of like the horror of being a teenager right. but what it makes it really endearing and i think it's great to see representation so i hope like media gets better but check it out the wilds on oh, amazon
1: great. i will goodbye
0: achieved a major thing in january i got chloe to start buffy the vampire slayer with me and she quote said yesterday this is a cool show and i said yeah oh my
1: gosh i can't wait to hear her stories when she's older
0: about all the awesome stuff we do together our boy collages and buffy the (laughs) vampire
2: marathons
0: (laughs) well two sentences in things are looking good (laughs) In the United States there was no designations what? <laughs> Sorry, I just died because I messed that up.
1: <laughs> Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at KYFIFER.com.